This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's Sunday, March 20, 2022. Welcome to the sixth episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show. Download the show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We've uh, five fascinating episodes waiting for you there featuring conversations with cult expert Stephen Hassan and last weekend with politics girl Lee McGowan. Joining me today is Professor of History and Italian Studies at New York University and author of seven books, including Strong Men from Mussolini to Present, Ruth Ben Gatt. Ruth, with your knowledge of authoritarianism and threats to democracy around the world, I'm very keen to get into the mind of Vladimir Putin, as well as his relationship with our former president, Donald Trump, which many have argued may have contributed to the invasion of Ukraine. Ruth, the uh, former Ukrainian ambassador, uh, Marie Ivanovich, or she was the US ambassador to Ukraine, I should say, she said we did not do enough to dissuade Putin. She's talking about in previous years and certainly under the Trump administration. So let's just look at how the relationship with the US and Russia has changed in recent years before we go back and look at the kind of the, the long-term history. Do, do you think that America could have done more to, to dissuade Putin in recent years? I, I think so. I think that what's going on now and his, his very reckless um, invasion of Ukraine is because <clears throat> he feels empowered because nothing much happened uh, either in 2008 or when he annexed Crimea. And there were sanctions, but uh, they had... Uh, they had the ability to kind of counter them. And it also gave him a big surge of popularity inside of Russia. So <clears throat> had the um, had the West uh, cracked down, especially on the things he cares about, like his Nord Stream 2 pipeline, I think we'd be in a different place now. We need to think a little bit about what Russians think of Putin. It's all very well, you know, getting our heads around how we feel about him and how Ukrainians feel about him. But fundamentally, most Russians who are not open, living in an open society, they don't have access to the internet or to social media like we do. How, how do they see him? You know, what do they think of Vladimir Putin, certainly before this war in Ukraine, but even now? So going into the war, before the war started, Putin had a 71% popularity approval rating. Now, um, and that was something measured by independent pollster Levada, which is uh, taken to be reliable. It's very difficult in a closed society with a massive propaganda machine, uh, which imprisons 
you know, dissenters to know exactly how people feel. But those who answered these polls, he was considered uh, a fairly, you know, quite a popular president. One interesting indication, though, is there's a, a U.S.-based study called the Russian Elite Survey. And every uh, four years, they, they survey 240 very high-ranking Russians. And again, caveat, how do we measure these people's responses? But they, um, it's, this is important for now because one of the main things that they uh, approved of, uh, of Putin was his handling of Russia's image in the world and Russian power in the world, and that he was giving Russia prestige. They were, this was at 2020, the last time it was done, and they were less happy about his domestic performance. So we, we can think about now that Russian prestige in the world is, uh, in, in, has been shredded, both you know, exposed to have poor military performance and all the sanctions, so that's that's an interesting fact to think about, uh, and when we we think about how this could uh, have a backfire, how could this could backfire for him in the future? There has been uh, small uprisings in pockets around Russia. They've arrested seven or eight thousand protesters for their kind of anti-war sentiment in Russia, and of course we had that very brave employee at the state television channel who stood up with a poster behind the news anchor saying no war they're lying to you she was hit with a fine i was amazed it was just a fine considering that she managed to kind of infiltrate the the state broadcaster so you know what what are the consequences to people in russia you know are they are they kind of keeping their heads down knowing stuff but knowing they can't say it or is it more like china where these people actually fundamentally 100 percent believe in their supreme leader vladimir putin and they actually want him to continue to be a success i i think one one very interesting thing is um in 2021 in february there was a poll again levada that said that Russians aged 18 to 24, almost 50% of them thought that uh, Russia was going in the wrong direction with its policies. And if you look at who's out on the streets, even now, and I think it's, by now, I think it's more like uh, it's over 10,000 arrests. And you look at the history of protests, there were big protests in 2019, then going back 2012. They're, they're not only young people, but they're mostly young people. And there's a whole generation now that is against the war and they've been against Putin and they, um, they, they're chafing at these restrictions. They don't agree with the very harsh, you know, quite draconian anti-gay laws, anti-trans, it's anti-everything in their point of view. So this is, I actually think that Putin, uh, if we think of the big question of why now, why did he do this invasion now? Um, from studying autocrats, uh, I think that he had intimations of his power fading, that he'd reached his peak, that his kleptocracy is really not sustainable. And we see now the toll uh, of it on the military, for example. He knows perfectly well that younger Russians don't um, really are not, they're disaffected. And so when they get into this um, mental 
into this mental state, this phase where they think it might all be downhill, they tend to do kind of reckless things and they start thinking about their legacy, their place in history. And so these recent speeches of Putin where he's obsessed with history, goes all the way back to 1917. And uh, there's even a, a phrase for this a syndrome, it's called gambling for resurrection, where you're gonna do something so glorious that it's going to revive the Russian Empire in this case, and you're going to, your name will be you know resounding through the ages. And most of the strongmen I've uh, studied are uh, they think they're like Napoleon, except they forget how Napoleon ended up. So I think there is this tide of young people who really don't they want more freedoms. Whether they want Western style democracy, we shouldn't assume that, but they want more freedoms, and that's not what. Um, Putin can do. He's just had more repression, more censorship because he doesn't have another plan. What's his obsession with the former Soviet Union? I mean, they're saying, I mean, even Marie Ivanovich, the former ambassador is saying that he will probably move west if he wins in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that his desire is to reconstruct the, the, the former Soviet Union? So one of the most interesting things I, I, I kind of hit upon in writing my book, which is a hundred years of these autocrats, and it tries to establish patterns, was their relation to kind of history. So on the one hand, uh, they all are about the future and they're modernizers and you know Putin's very much the doer as they say in Russian, he's always taking ice baths, he's you know operating tractors and he's on horses. So he's he's going to be like sending Russia into the future. But equally, they channel nostalgia. So we had in, in America, uh, it's not about making a nation great, it's about making the nation great again. And every strongman uh, who's been there a long time, they, they start like, they get these kind of uh, delusions of grandeur and imperial fantasies. So Mussolini had the Roman Empire, Erdogan's obsessed with the Ottoman Empire, and there's a whole like thing in Turkish culture with the Ottoman Empire. And Putin is, it's some Russia analysts are talking about him styling himself as, you know, Catherine the Great. So it's, it's imperial Russia, but more, um, more uh, approximately more closer to time and closer to the culture Putin grew up in. It's the Soviet space, the idea of the sphere of influence. Because these men are, um, they're actually driven by fear as well as hubris, and they do things that make them feel safe. And so Putin, he wants territorial grandeur. He wants Ukraine's wheat, although he's destroying everything. That's that's because it's not very logical. Um, but he wants to have this sphere of influence where, you know, if, if Zelensky acted like Lukashenko, this whole thing wouldn't be happening. So you need these puppet states. And through that, you expand your territorial buffer against the West. Um, you have more, more um, countries and more people to exploit because Putin is a plunderer. He plunders his domestic economy. And that's he, he's very similar to the fascists in this kind of plunder mentality. And so that mentality, sooner or later, you have to keep expanding. And we've seen every eight years, he goes and he takes more territory. I find it very interesting what you said about how these authoritarian characters, they almost yearn for the period during which they grew up. Yeah. 
And I guess that's because we all have a nostalgia for our youth, don't we? And we associate our past and a time which where we had less responsibilities because we weren't yet maybe fully developed or adults yet. And yet the world seemed rosy because everything was done for us. And I think this this also kind of plays into those, the Trump story about making America yes. great again or white again, as I often translate yes. it to mean, where in his childhood or in his young adult life, he could get away with being the person that he wanted to be. And there was none of this kind of wokeness to question him or, you know, he, he was basically playing in his own he was like a kid in a candy store because there there weren't rules. But I just before we go to Trump, because there's so many similarities, I just want to ask one question about Putin. When we see him interviewed, it's invariably through a translator or it's with subtitles. So as uh, uh, Americans, or in my case, Europeans here in America, we it's very hard to really get under the skin of who this guy is. Now, you've studied autocrats. You recognize what this guy is all about. I want to know how crazy he is. You know, I, I can't. The crazy doesn't come through like it did with Trump. The crazy seems to be very. Um, he's very measured, and he's mm -hmm. very controlled. Now, I appreciate he was a trained KGB agent, mm -hmm. and he, you know, he has a kind of history, military history. But is he using those skills when he's on the international stage, or was on the international stage, or mm -hmm. is he genuinely a very calm? I mean, does he does he like scream and shout in private? I mean, who is this guy? No, I think there there you know Masha Gessen wrote a book uh, like all the different forgotten now the man with no face or there's so many, there are different Putins and in fact this is enshrined in these calendars that he releases approved by the Kremlin where there's Putin sniffing a flower so that's the the kind Putin Putin with animals Putin you know with uh, flying heavy machinery dominating this or that. And so all of them do this. Mussolini did the same thing because they, through that, they appeal to all these different consistencies, constituencies. And the thing is that with the strongmen, especially the ones who are more uh, savvy at, at um, relating to people, they will be who you need them to be. So it's not that they have no center, but they're such opportunists. They're so transactional and they have no morals. So they will remake themselves to whatever needs the time needs to get to get power. And they will also address each group as though it is, you know, what they tell people what they need to hear. That's at the beginning when they're trying to amass their power. Now, uh, Putin, where he really used his uh, skills as a case officer. And so what his job was, was getting people to collaborate was he's had a series of interlocutors. Um, he had uh, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany. These are heads of state, important people. Then he had Berlusconi for a long time, very, very important close relationship. I start strongmen with the, the story of Berlusconi and Putin because what he cultivated these people and he rewarded them and he got them to be there as his, spokes, his spokespeople basically. And so, you know, Berlusconi and Schroeder were both kind of advocating for Russia's interest. And this is very important to the Kremlin information warfare, even for uh, masses of people. That the, the point is not just to inculcate an alternate reality, it's to make people see the world in ways that benefit the Kremlin or Putin himself. And so Berlusconi for many years 
He was uh, the mouthpiece of what Putin wanted in Europe. And then we have Trump. <laughs> and Trump is a little different in that he had so much history with the Russians for so long and he was funded and you know he's part of that. As a money launderer, he, he was in this system of cleaning Russian money. So he's a little different than Berlusconi who was economically independent. They might've done deals together, but he didn't need Russian money. But so there's a history for a world leader. Now, you know, the most important is America has nuclear power. So it's incredible that he, that tr Trump was in the oval, you know, uh, as a, as a Kremlin friend. Um, but there is a history to this. And this is where uh, Putin's personal skills uh, have paid off. We should talk about Trump. Uh, I often preface conversations about Donald Trump on this show as I don't want it to become the Donald Trump show. But I also recognize that we should probably never stop talking about Donald Trump. You know, the guy, his impact on America, his impact on the on the international community, his impact on minorities, you know, his, his, it's a lasting legacy. And even if he doesn't run again, which he probably will, only because he doesn't want to be prosecuted. And being the president is a great way of not being prosecuted for your, for your crimes and misdemeanors. But I, I feel like it's important that we have to talk to, about him on, a, on an intellectual level. Now, it's been widely uh, um, written that he is a malignant narcissist and somebody who shares the same mental health conditions as a lot of these other authoritarian characters that you write about in Strongman. And in Strongman, you write about Trump. You know, you bring it right up to the present and you make those references and those comparisons. But I'm very keen to understand the relationship maybe prior to Trump winning the presidency in the US, his connections with Russia. I mean, even Rex Tillerson, who we forget mm -hmm. about, you know, because he, he was, you know, he left the White House. But, you know, he was awarded a medal by Russia in 2014 when he was the CEO mm -hmm. of ExxonMobil, you know, because fundamentally oil and gas is the is the commodity that connects mm -hmm. Russia with the rest of the world. And then Rex Tillerson is installed in the White House in in. 2019 and and you know suddenly all of a sudden or sorry 2017 and all of a sudden you have a direct connection between the kremlin and the white house even outside of donald trump so how connected were the trumps and his type with the putins and his types yeah so the tillerson is 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 a good example as one that i often give because there were many um, Republicans who had longstanding business relationships uh, with the Kremlin, and just as there were also in Europe, right? And the Russians reward these people not only with medals, and uh, and they, you know, they they're very good at this kind of thing. And so the the difference was that it was, it was no accident that Tillerson was chosen by Trump to be. Secretary of State, which is an incredible coup for the Russians. And um, so, so Trump was able to build on this history uh, that, it, look, in part, it's the history of the broader West, that, that what's coming out with all these sanctions, and I, I wrote about it in Strongman a bit, and many other people have, have you know, written many books on this, is, 
the entire uh, roster of Western enablers for Russian uh, kleptocracy and not only Russia, of course, because all the PR firms, international law firms, wealth managers, all these people who many are based in, uh, in London and in Washington and New York, and they make klep the, the Russian kleptocracy work. Um, and so there's, so the Tillersons of the world need to be put in this broader context. And yet only Tillerson was secretary of state. And it was very important uh, that he had, had gotten this medal <laughs> as a symbol from the Russians. And one of the saddest days I, I will never forget was when I saw that um, Trump was hosting uh, Lavrov. Uh, he had the U.S. ambassador and the foreign minister in the White House, in the Oval Office. And he did not allow... There's a famous photograph of them together, isn't there? I, and he did yeah. not allow, just for your, your, your audience, uh, no American journalist or photographer was allowed in, only a TASS photographer. And this was so significant. I've, um, I study propaganda and I thought, I remember I said to a friend, if, if the Kremlin has like a, a, a greatest hits of propaganda successes through the ages, um, that photo will be on the wall because the triumph of having a Russian represented meeting, only Russia, the symbolism of no Americans being allowed in, uh, was, it was, it was really sad for American democracy. And it showed just how venal, uh, and corrupt, uh, Trump is. Now, we saw a similar thing. Was it in Helsinki where Trump and Putin shared the stage? But they also went to a private meeting beforehand, didn't they, where the only person mm -hmm. present was a translator? I mean, I'd love to get that translator on this show. That would be an interesting conversation to have. I think everyone's probably you after and, that translator. Yeah. And and now me, we me see and, me and everybody else exactly. And now we see that uh, we 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 had the story of uh, Trump destroying and flushing down the toilet so many uh, notes uh, from his presidency. I'm sure those notes uh, were never supposed to be seen. The translator translator's notes, but. Um, you know, but also Ivanka and Jared, they had, now it's coming out because there's scrutiny of the oligarchs' assets and their relationships. They have very close relationships with Abramovich and some of the other oligarchs. And there's just a whole world of Trump world connections. And right before uh, Trump ran for office, uh, Eric Trump said, you know, we don't need, we have all the funding we need because we have it from the Russians. This was Trump organization funding comes through the Russians. And he said it very openly as though it was not a problem. So, so the, and, and it's not just the Russians, of course, Trump was in very in debt to the Chinese and who knows who else. But what matters for our conversation and for what's going on today is when they were in Helsinki, what I wrote about it for CNN, I wrote about the body language and what was so fascinating as a, as somebody who studies strongmen and masculinity, um, Trump's kind of bombast where you remember there was another occasion where he shoved aside, I think it was the prime minister of um, maybe Yeah, Mastone. that was at the G20 summit. Yeah, he shoved yeah. him aside. And that was typical of how Trump would be, barrel in the room. 
And Trump at, in Helsinki with Putin was pretty, um, he was a very different animal. He was downcast. He, he was like his gaze was down a lot. His shoulders were hunched and he was clearly ill at ease. And this is somebody who's all about being the master of the space he's in, um, being the center of attention. And he was definitely different. And he's a very good performer. And yet he wasn't able to hide it. And I thought that was fascinating. And that, told, that tells you everything about their relationship. He, he looks up to Putin, clearly. And it's very interesting to me that the only people that Trump ever befriended were dictators. These were the people that he felt that he could connect with, were the Kim Jong-uns and the, and the President Xi Jinping's and the Vladimir Putin's. And like, you know, he... He doesn't have any friends. You know, he's not somebody no. that, that needs friends. He just need and, and if it's true about the compromat, you know, the PP tape or whatever it is that the Russians had on Trump, I'm sure there's more to it than that. And as you say, I'm sure it's more connected with, with money and lending and, and because there was a lot of American banks refused to lend to the Trump organization. I, I really sensed from that meeting where he looked across, he was asked a question by a journalist, you know, do you, did you ask Mr. Putin whether he meddled in the 2016 election? And Trump said, well, yeah, I asked him and he said he didn't. And who am I supposed to believe, my security services or the guy standing right next to me? I mean, just analyze that moment for me for a second, because I'm sure you've watched that tape a thousand times. That really was the, the pinnacle of the admission that he was on the side of Russia and not on the side of America. Yeah, and what's, what was so sad and shocking about that was um, him. it wasn't just that he was going to be uh, believing Putin, it was that he was not believing American intelligence. And from the very start, um, when Trump took office in January 2017, he was, he was engaged in a war on all American institutions to domesticate them, to make them his own. And I remember that Kellyanne Conway, uh, his advisor, said, and this really uh, stayed with me, she said, well, um, and this was just like in February, uh, his first month in office. She said, well, we're going, you know, he's going to want to put his own people in national security and intelligence. And I analyzed it for CNN at the time as a kind of coup in the making, that they would go after the state apparatus and all the federal agencies, which he did, the EPA and DOJ and, and, and kind of tried to, and this is what autocrats do. You personalize everything. And so this going after American intelligence, if you are, uh, if you have, if you're a criminal, which he is, and you're a criminal in so many ways, and you also uh, need to justify election interference and all kinds of other Russian crimes, you can't afford to have a neutral uh, intelligence apparatus. So the, and, and also the, the, the psychological warfare, which he's very good at, to demoralize American intelligence by saying, I don't believe them, I believe Putin. And Putin's somebody who comes from Russian intelligence, but he also has killed many agents. Um, you know, he, there was, uh, the, the whistleblower was uh, poisoned with polonium. And, and so uh, this was sending a very heavy, heavy message to uh, American intelligence and really sad. Does Trump know that he's an autocrat? Do, does Putin know that he's an autocrat? I mean, 
you know, <laughs> you study these people, but I mean, I think Trump is a bit of an open book, really, because he doesn't have an intellect. And obviously, he's speaking in with very simple, small words. So it's very easy to understand. Like the other day, he was talking about the javelins, you know, these anti-tank weapons that he wanted to take credit for sending to Ukraine, which were going to Ukraine as aid anyway. And he used them as negotiation when he was trying to extort Vladimir Zelensky, but I could hear him using, he was being interviewed and he kept talking, oh no, it wasn't, it was, at a, it was at a rally. And he kept talking about the javelins because javelins is a slightly bigger word to the kind of words that he's used to using. And so he wanted to keep saying javelins and then explaining <laughs> yeah. what javelins meant. And even me saying javelins a lot sounds too much, but he said it way more than I did. And he doesn't actually really know what javelins are. He just heard the word. He's inserted it into his um, vernacular and he's trying to use it to sound smarter than he is. It's very obvious. It's like a child learning a new word. So so to me, Trump kind of is just a, is just a, an idiot who, who was got the wrong job. But it's different with Putin, isn't it? So do these people know how dangerous they are? I don't totally agree with you about Trump because he's a highly skilled psychological war operative and highly skilled propagandist. He's really one of the most skilled propagandists of our time. I know that might sound absurd to you, but he, he is. No, it's what, important. I recognize the importance of that. And what we've been subjected to in America is five years, if you count his, from the minute he started his campaign, we were subjected to five years of intense psychological warfare and Russian information warfare. I mean, the guy was tweeting over 120 times a day. And that's apart from the rallies, the Fox News, everything else he was doing. And the threats, the barrage of misinformation, 30,000 lies. There's the big lie. But there's the 30,000 lies. That's a lot of lies. Yes, as reported told. by the, the New York Times, I think they did the count, didn't they? Yeah. And, but what this did was to acclimate people. And, and this is how cultivation into a leader cult works. So he knew exactly, he always knows exactly what he's doing. Um, he also goes off on these flights of fancy and says nonsensical things because he's not He's not as controlled as Putin. He, he's, it's very difficult to, um, to, you can't really compare them. And one reason you can't compare them is that Putin is an apparatchik. He came up through the Soviet system inside the KGB. And so he had to kind of discipline his personality and he always did martial arts. He's a very disciplined person. And he had to have this persona that was very calculating. Trump has always been master of his own domain. He's subjugated by his father and now his father's memory, but his father, you know, set him up. And then he's been his own man and he's been the head of Trump organization. He did everything. As you said before, there were no rules for Trump. And his whole persona was about having no rules. He's the man above the law and he gets away with everything. So he's got a different personality, which is why he goes on these riffs. Like there's no other world leader. Now, Berlusconi used to go on these on a version of these riffs because he also was self-made. Well, he was really self-made and he built his empire. But uh, Putin is a man who's highly controlled. Um, and what we're seeing, though, is the classic autocrat's trap where he, as he was in power longer, he started listening to fewer and fewer people. 
and didn't get good intelligence. And this war was not gamed out with his generals. It, you know, he was working from outdated sanctions, uh, you know, contingency plans. And so it's backfired because he falls into this kind of paranoid trap. But Trump had that too. And I guess the last thing I'd say is what's been so fascinating is that Trump ruled in a full democracy. He tried to ruin it, but he didn't succeed with an open media. And yet all these syndromes and um, dynamics that are authoritarian in nature, like having the inner sanctum where you have your kids and you know flatterers and sycophants around you and hiring and firing, all of these things that all autocrats do, he did them like in miniature. It's just that he, he wasn't able to, to take away our freedoms and he got voted out. But it's been really interesting to follow all of that. Is it fair to, and we could finish with this if you like, you know, is it fair to align Trump with some of these great, I hate the word great in this case, but these historic uh, dictators of history? I mean, I know it's in your book, but for those who haven't read it yet, the, the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, is it fair to put Trump into that category? Are we looking at the right period of time? You know, if we look at early Hitler before the before the um, Nazi invasion, you know, when he was building the Nazi party, is that the comparison with Trump in his five years? Is it fair to put them in the same category? So uh, I want to be clear about this. I don't actually make comparisons in the book because I don't think that's useful. The, the contexts are too different. What, what I'm trying to do is, is show how authoritarianism as a whole evolves. Today, we have fewer one-party states like Hitler style. Today, it's more electoral autocracies where you, you come to power through elections and then you fix the elections. So, um, but one of the arguments of the book, the reason he's in it is that his, he has a similar personality. He has similar... Um, uh, similar ambitions. That's why he loves all these other dictators. He just, uh, but the context is different. He wasn't able to take our rights away. He's, he's made it very clear if he comes back to power, he's, there's going to be, it's going to be very, they're going to try and have it be very quick because it's unfinished business. And so he's in the book because it's, it's what that looked like within a democracy, having an authoritarian style president. Um, the same as you had with Berlusconi, who didn't wreck democracy. And in fact, he was voted out once and then he was forced to resign, but he did a huge amount of damage. And he was this autocratic style personality, indeed allied very openly with Putin. <laughs> so it's more to, to tell people, especially Americans who feel like, oh, it can't happen here. We're not, you know, we're, we don't talk about coups and authoritarians. Like nobody even used that word before. Uh, 2017. You know, people thought I was insane when I started, you know, writing about it in 2016. Um, it, it's to show that there is a, a lineage for behaving this way, even if the outcomes are different in in the 21st century. And and Trump's obsession with genetics. You know, we often hear him talking about good genes, referring to white people. And, you know, how uh, a good American can only be a white American, you know, that the subtext to a lot of this is steeped in racism. Totally. And, and that is, I think, really the legacy of Trump is this, you know, division, creating division, because before Trump, 
it was possible for bipartisan legislation to be passed. And now he's completely wrecked that here in America. What are the chances of him returning? Do you think if you had to, I know you don't like to make predictions, but like, is it something we should be very, very worried about? Oh, I don't mind making predictions. I've made plenty of them and I always want to be wrong. And so far, I actually haven't been wrong, um, including I predicted <laughs> that he wouldn't leave office um, without some kind of struggle or, you know, authoritarian event. So that it's hard to say because he's kept his personality cult. He seems to have kept his authoritarian control of the GOP where you're not allowed to have any dissent. And he's got partners helping him with that, like um, Tucker Carlson. You know, you have the party, you have really, you actually have a party line now. But he's got, he's got rivals like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's kind of absorbed Trump's lessons. So it, it's not clear what will happen. But if he wants to run, he would, he would have a very good chance of certainly getting the nomination and perhaps uh, getting back into power because at the state level, the Republicans have been very busy since he left office, you know, fixing our election system so that it's weighted in ways that help Republicans. So that's very serious. Um, Fascinating. Ruth, thank you very much for joining us. Ruth Ben-Gatt. And you can subscribe to Ruth's newsletter, Lucid, on threats to democracy via Substack. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast, and also the 5-Minute News OG podcast, which drops every morning so you can listen whilst you make your morning coffee. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.